Binance announced their mining pool just a couple of days ago. This will shake things up. They will be very competitive with the other exchanges offering mining pool services, so I think it definitely puts all mining pools on notice. There's been days that F2Pool has lost 100 BTC in terms of having to pay miners without mining blocks themselves. But over a long period of time and with a significant amount of network hash rates, those ups and downs kind of even out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fifth and final episode of Coindesk's Bitcoin Having 2020 podcast series. On this episode, I'm joined by Thomas Heller, the global business director at the largest Bitcoin mining pool in the world, F2 Pool. At the time of this podcast recording, we are just under two weeks away from the Bitcoin halving and Bitcoin prices, last I checked before this show, is sitting right at around $7,700. That's pretty close to $8,000. Thomas, do you think that Bitcoin prices will hit the $10,000 mark as it did in February before the halving event? Christine, thank you for having me. Bitcoin price is one of the most speculated aspects of the industry. I think that with only two weeks to go, it's very unlikely that we'll hit the 10K mark. But I think in general, we're heading in the right direction. The price movement, you're right, Thomas, is very difficult to predict. But the economics of Bitcoin are set in stone, or rather, should I say, set in code. On this podcast show, we'll be going over the fundamentals of Bitcoin economics as it relates to the activity of mining. So to kick off our discussion, Thomas, can you tell me about your very first encounter with Bitcoin mining? And what was the turning point in your view which convinced you to actually start running machines to mine Bitcoin professionally? I will actually go back a bit further. How did I get into Bitcoin in the first place? I actually moved to China from Australia back in 2016. And then during 2017, actually needed a way to move my money from China back to Australia. So actually, that was my first touch with Bitcoin. It was actually solving a real purpose for me, as there's always trouble moving currency from China abroad. And then just going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, I was very lucky in early 2018 to be introduced to the co-founder of F2Pool, Wang Chun. And we actually struck up a friendship. And then over the course of the year, I, I started to learn parts and parts about mining. And it was just like falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole where I just couldn't believe how much there was to it in the mining side, whether it's around the, the technology of the machines, whether it's around the infrastructure of the mining farms, or even the financial side. So it's definitely been a very interesting journey. Capped off with 2019, just with all the mining pools, it's very competitive. So doing our best just to do what we can in the industry. So it's been a very interesting and fun journey so far. Back in 2016, was mining as profitable or as lucrative as an activity as it is now, would you say? Actually, there's something very interesting that I like to analyze myself. So it's actually the revenue per terahash per day. I don't have the numbers on hand from back in 2016, but at the beginning of 2018, you could earn around 60 cents or 80 to 80 cents per terahash per day. Of course, that decreases over time because... Network difficulty increases, so it's an inverse kind of relationship. During 2019, we saw a kind of a bull run with the Bitcoin price from, from around March, April onwards. And that particular metric, revenue per terahash per day, increased from around 15 cents per terahash per day to around 44. And then now it's down to around 10 or 11. So if you're looking at a per terahash value, 
it's always decreasing in relation to the, the Bitcoin difficulty. But on the other hand, there's more efficient machines being produced each year. And also people are obtaining cheaper sources of electricity. So it does mean it is profitable, but it's a very competitive game. Right. Was there ever a point after you started to mine Bitcoin professionally in 2016 when you thought about switching off your machines or either changing or abandoning your mining operations entirely? If so, when was that and why? So I think there's two angles to look at. One angle will be from the F2 pool, mining pool angle, and one angle would be the actual machines that I'm running myself. As I'm mining with my own machines in China right now, it's very unique. The reason is because part of the year from May to October has the hydro season. So electricity is much cheaper than most places around the globe. Whereas from November to April, it's slightly more expensive. So at the end of 2018, that's when the Bitcoin price was hovering around $3,000, $4,000. There was a huge number of miners turning off their machines. But that was also coinciding with the end of that hydro season. During the hydro season, you'll probably be able to host your miners and mine for around three cents or four cents electricity price. Outside of that season, it's around five, five point five, six cents. So, end of 2018, there was a moment. And then I would say from the beginning of 2019 until now, it's mostly been continuous mining for myself and all of our clients at F2 Pool. Of course, March 12th, 2020, earlier this year, we saw that big price crash. You know, it was kind of like a halving before the halving. So the Bitcoin price went from 9K down to about $3,800. We saw a big impact there. So prior to that, there was 125 exa hashes securing the Bitcoin network. That dropped over the following week to around 90 exa hash. That's around 25% of the network going offline. My personal machines, I'm running machines from all of the top four big brands. Some of the older ones I had to switch off. My break-even price was around $4,800, so I switched them off. But the other ones were still okay getting to that the kind of $4,000 level. So I can say now all my machines are back online, but I'm very conscious that with two weeks to go to the halving, without some significant price action, it's quite likely... I will have to turn off some machines. And I think that's the case for a lot of people who are running older machines. It's really interesting, Thomas, that you can give both perspectives as a Bitcoin miner running physical machines and then also from the perspective of Bitcoin mining pools like F2 pool. Can you explain to our listeners how exactly does a Bitcoin mining pool make profits and in what ways does the competition amongst mining pools differ from that of the competition between Bitcoin miners? So the first thing is that mining pools are quite imperative to the whole mining ecosystem. So back maybe eight, 10 years ago, there's not too many computers on the network mining Bitcoin. So that's the primary reason we have mining pools. It's because an individual miner with a single machine could secure the network today by submitting their hash rate to the mining pool and then joining that kind of team as the mining pool mines the block, shares the rewards appropriately. So the mining pools each take a small fee based on the hash rate submitted to the pool. There's two types of payout systems that exist today. One is pay per share, which is very common, and one is pay per last known share. So pay per share pools, they will actually pay out 
revenue to the miners, regardless of whether or not the pool mines a block. And for both of the payout schemes, uh, the pool takes a small amount of fees. So for PPS or PPS plus pools, between 2.5% to 4% fees. Uh, of course, you know, larger mining farms can create business partnerships with the pools and get reduced fees, but that is the standard. And PPLNS pools actually offer slightly lower fees, but that is a risk to large mining operators because if they're only paid out through PPLNS, if the pool mines a block, well, if the pool is unlucky for a period of time, that the miners may not see revenue for a period of time. What does PPLS stand for? Paper last known share. And PPS stands for pay per share. So these days, PPS Plus and PPLNS pools all pay out transaction fees and the block reward. And for their service, miners actually allow the pools to take a small mining pool fee, as I said. So how do the pools compete is a very good question. So one angle is definitely fees. Another angle is the kind of coins supported, especially from the same mining algorithm. So, for example, SHA-256 has Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Bitcoin SV, as well as many other smaller coins. This is important because if all three coins are supported by the pool, the pool can actually switch between the three for what is most profitable, which can earn more revenue for the, the actual miners themselves. But there's many other angles. It could be the service that the pools provide to the, the mining operations, whether it's setting up the farm or optimizations to their network. It could be introducing business opportunities. It could be OTC selling of Bitcoins to clients. And I really see that the mining pool competitors and ourselves, we do everything we can to make mining as smooth as possible. Because at the end of the day, there's only a number of blocks per day, around 1,800 Bitcoins per day. So we're all fighting over the same kind of miners. And I do want to talk a little bit more deeply about that competition that's occurring now between mining pools and also Bitcoin miners and how that might change. As we know, the halving over the course of many decades upon decades will cause Bitcoin subsidy rewards to be reduced to zero. Once that happens, miners, as well as mining pools, would only depend on transaction fees for rewards. Thomas, what do you think will happen to the competition between Bitcoin mining pools and Bitcoin miners once block subsidy rewards are entirely eliminated? Do you think that's going to have an impact on the economic dynamics of Bitcoin mining once block subsidy rewards are completely reduced to zero? So the first part is about the competition. Binance announced their mining pool just a couple of days ago. And this will shake things up. They will be very competitive with the other exchanges offering mining pool services, so Corby and OKX. And I think it definitely puts all mining pools on notice. It actually does uh, provide a risk to the network security. Uh, the reason is because as of right now, one block has 12.5 BTC and around half a BTC of transaction fees. Once we get to 6.25, I think there will not be a major issue. 3.25 and onwards, it could actually present an issue. There was actually a few years back, I think it was 2013, there was one block that had a 200 Bitcoin transaction fee component. Imagine in the future when a block reward only has 3.25 BTC, for example, but a, a huge transaction fee that could be done by error. Now, 
it's actually possible that a mining pool could engage in selfish mining, where instead of pool A mining that block with a huge transaction fee and then the other pools trying to find the successive block after that block, pools could actually work together or themselves to just ignore that block that was mined and try to mine that block for themselves. And then that could possibly present the case of a chain split. Actually, our co-founder Wang Chun talked about this recently. And that's definitely one of his biggest concerns, which is about the security of the network. It'll be interesting to see how things play out. Of course, that's an outlier. It all, it, the transaction fee component with the block reward and the Bitcoin price all are key parts to the puzzle. It'll be interesting to see how the price moves with the upcoming halving in a couple of weeks from now. A lot of people are expecting a large price increase yet to be seen. So I think it's a little bit difficult to say because the 3.25 block reward will be around eight years from now. I think there is a lot of uncertainties in general and especially about the price. But I think as an ecosystem, we always need to consider the network security because with the halving, at least two weeks from now, if we did see 50 or 60% or more of the machines switching off, what happens to those machines? Do they get moved elsewhere and, and turned on or are they used for malicious actions? I think that it's not going to be a major issue in this case, but the following halvings, it may be more of an issue. Support for this podcast and this message come from ErisX. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at stellar.org slash coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot C-O slash coindesk. Do you know what percentage of blocks rewards that miners receive are actually from transaction fees right now? Do you know how small or how large that percentage is for miners? So the block reward is 12.5 BTC, and then the transaction fees generally around 0.2 to 0.5 BTC. I check every so often. It's rare for it to be wildly out of that kind of range. But during Various market cycles back at the end of 2017, when there was a lot of hype and retail hype around Bitcoin, more and more transactions were taking place and those fees were larger. But in recent times, around 0.2 to 0.5 BTC, which you can check from a block explorer. So still quite small. The potential issue of network security is one that you're not alone in that I have been seeing from other proponents in the industry as well raise. To that point, is there anything about the economic model of Bitcoin that you, Thomas, would change or that you wish there was some more direction about in the initial Bitcoin white paper? It's a great question. And maybe in this case, it's a boring answer. I, I do feel that the economic design of Bitcoin is beautiful, actually. 
I would say that the economic design of Bitcoin is definitely not a problem. And I would say that an area I would rather see people focus on is working together as people involved in the cryptocurrency industry, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's Ethereum, Bitcoin forks, or any other cryptocurrency, I would rather see people work together and try to build on top of Bitcoin. I would say that if Bitcoin does fail, which I don't think it will fail, but if it does fail, it will be because people lose sight of the common goal working together. Because I believe that we have been seeing continued adoption year on year. Maybe it's a little bit slow, but I do believe that it all will kind of equal out, whether it's around the price, around the hash rate, or that's around the network difficulty or the transaction fees. Speaking to new innovations in the mining industry and the space, you had mentioned that cryptocurrency exchange Binance will now be functioning as a mining pool. Can you explain the importance and the significance of that decision and how that might impact competition between mining pools? So Binance is a very large competitor, a very large player in the whole blockchain ecosystem. So they have a a key advantage. They have an existing user base. They already have an exchange, wallets, and so forth. They'll be able to introduce the mining pool services on top of their existing services. They probably will be able to compete in the way of potentially using the mining pool as a cost leader to attract clients for their other services. I would be surprised if they can achieve deep initiatives in the mining space. The other mining companies have been around for a very long time, years on years of experience. I think that it's very possible that Binance will become a medium-sized mining pool in the short to mid-term. I think I saw earlier they've got around two exahash right now, which is around 2% of the network hash rate. I think they will compete a lot with the other exchanges, Warby and OKX. Those two exchanges have around four to five exahash each. But I'm not sure Binance will be able to compete on a deep level on the mining side with some of the other mining pools. Obviously, there's F2 pool, pool in. There's the Bitmain mining pools, BTC.com, Ample, via BTC. There's Slush Pool. The ones that I've mentioned, they've been around for a while. They've contributed a lot to the mining ecosystem. And that definitely takes time to do as much as the other pools have done. I'll be interested to see how it plays out. Mining pools, it's very competitive. And I am looking forward to see what Binance plans to do on the mining side. Definitely. To the point of working together and cooperating with one another to further the Bitcoin network and Bitcoin adoption, do you know of any mining industry-wide initiatives that F2 Pool is engaged with in terms of other OG mining pools that you mentioned. You had mentioned uh, Via Pool. You had mentioned Bitmain's mining pool. Is there any kind of coordination or cooperation happening between those mining pools already in the industry? And if so, what's the nature of that kind of cooperation? I wouldn't say there is a huge amount of cooperation between pools exactly, but I will highlight a few interesting initiatives. The guys from Slush Pool, they're building Stratum V2, which is an improvement to the the mining protocol, we think it's definitely heading in a, a positive direction. So we're kind of setting up our Stratum V2 supported uh, Bitcoin mining pools. That's one angle. As F2 pool, most of our efforts are working with mining companies outside of the pool space. 
we work close with manufacturers. So what's miner Canan, for example, as well as others and the mining companies themselves. Apart from Slushpool doing Stratum V2, they're probably the, the most interesting pool development that I'm seeing in recent times. I think most people, most companies see uh, mining pool as a service, like a secondary service, and want to focus most of their attention on the mining farms themselves or the machines themselves. And actually, I, I can understand. The mining pool business is competitive. There's not a huge amount of reward available. And especially if you're a PPS or a paper share pool, where you must pay out to your miners regardless if you mine the block or not, there is actually a huge risk. There's been days that F2 Pool has lost 100 BTC in terms of having to pay miners without mining blocks themselves. But over a long period of time and with a significant amount of network hash rates, those ups and downs kind of even out. Wow. I completely understand that competition between Bitcoin mining pools as fierce as it is would dissuade the kind of close cooperation and coordination that could otherwise exist. Thomas, are there any initiatives or projects that you're thinking of currently or that you'd like to start in order to create more of a, a tight-knit kind of community around between and amongst mining pools? One thing we're working on right now, and that's relatively close to launch, is just a whole new knowledge platform. We feel that mining is such a mysterious aspect of, of the Bitcoin world yet such a pivotal and important part. So we're launching a new knowledge platform around that, lots of content. And we're actually hoping to work with other companies to be partaking in that. That's one angle. I would say that one area of personal interest in the mining space is around helping miners to de-risk because they have to spend a lot of money on CapEx and OpEx to operate these mining farms, the facilities, the mining machines themselves, they are taking on a lot of risk and there is not too many mechanisms in place to de-risk. So recently we've seen a few entities, we've seen the guys in New York, BitOda, who are doing some kind of hash rate and difficulty derivatives. There's a number of other organizations with projects under wraps, but trying to build out kind of hash rate exchange platforms. So I think those are very interesting. I know a few companies kind of building DeFi on Bitcoin, and I feel that all these projects are very, very interesting. As F2Pool, we kind of give some advisory service to them as a goodwill gesture because we think these projects are all positive for the Bitcoin ecosystem. So I guess in, in summary, I'm excited to see organizations building things on top of the Bitcoin network, whether it's financial, whether it's helping these operations manage their risk better, or even in our case, just spreading the word about Bitcoin and letting the world know about it, yeah. Are any of those projects specific to de-risking mining pool operations, or are they all kind of specific to just general Bitcoin miners and their machines? I would say in relation to general Bitcoin miners. Actually, I'll talk about for a second the risks for a mining pool. The big one which we've touched on is about PPS, so paying to the miners without mining the blocks. That, I would have to say is the biggest risk. So as I said, the reward for mining pools is not so high, but also the risk is not too high apart from this PPS thing. So I can't really see an initiative that would help the mining pools de-risk any further because the biggest risk is the paper share. 
payout scheme, but that's by choice. We do that to take risk away from the miners, our clients themselves. Thanks for that. I think that sometimes the function of a mining pool, how it makes its profits, as well as the risks that it does have to undergo are less known than what Bitcoin miners often have to undergo. And the diversification of the industry is quite interesting to watch how it's not just the Bitcoin miners anymore, but there's also the hardware manufacturers, there's these pools. It's really interesting, Thomas, that we started off this discussion and this conversation by talking about how you didn't just get into mining pool immediately, but you first came across Bitcoin and its use case as a currency, as a way to move value from one place of the world to another. Historically, deflationary currencies pegged to a finite supply of another commodity or currency hasn't performed well. The US dollar, which is the global reserve currency for quite some time now, is an inflationary currency with an unknowable supply and circulation. This is a very macro big question for you, but can Bitcoin with its economic model and fixed to supply one day become a reliable global currency in your view? And if not, what else is Bitcoin supposed to do and be? For me, I believe that we will continue to see more and more adoption of Bitcoin. I don't necessarily believe that it has to be a currency that is used day to day. There is challenges, you know, various governments are working towards digital currencies of their own. I know in China, they're making lots of progress. There's some pilot programs that started rolling out, I think, a week or two ago. So I don't think that Bitcoin really has to compete against them. I think over time, we will see less and less volatility of the Bitcoin price. One great example is the fact that the block rewards will be decreasing. So there will be less newly available Bitcoin per day available. So I, I would imagine that we see less volatility. I would say that I definitely just see it as a store of value. That's how I like to use it. Sometimes I keep a, some Bitcoin for myself and then for, for things I want to spend day to day, I might use a stable coin or I might exchange my Bitcoin to fiat. I think we're still in the very early stage of the whole cycle. We've seen a lot of development in 10 years. And as I said, I think we'll see less volatility over time and then it will serve the needs better for more people. Right. And because we're so close to the third Bitcoin halving in history, the one where block rewards will be reduced from 12.5 to 6.25 BTC, Thomas, were there any other lessons about the economic model of Bitcoin that you think are important to highlight in the very close run up to the next Bitcoin halving? I think it's pretty clear because the, the halving event is the most well-known, predictable event that happens in the Bitcoin space. The supply is going to decrease. We are going to see volatility in hash rate and network difficulty over the coming weeks. This is not something to worry about. I see often reports around death spirals or minor capitulation and the thought that because of the economic design of Bitcoin, that the whole network will come to a halt. I'm pretty confident in saying that that is not a feasible thing to happen. The reason is because after the hash rate drops, block times may slow, but eventually with every 2016 blocks, the difficulty will adjust. 
I'm a big fan of the, the design of Bitcoin and this is the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's going to adjust itself and we'll look forward to see how the future plays out. So everybody strap in and come along for the ride. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Thomas, for joining me today for this final podcast episode of Bitcoin Having 2020, Minor Perspectives. Thank you, Christine. It was a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners who have been tuning in every week for this special podcast series. Be sure to tune in again on May 11th to Coindesk's distributed consensus broadcasts, which will run throughout that week and feature more having related discussions. For everyone that is listening, you can find social media links to connect with Thomas in today's show notes. I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst for Coindesk. If you haven't already, you can get the 101 on all things Bitcoin having through the Coindesk Research Having Report, which is out now and free to download on the Coindesk website. The report features additional commentary from mining industry experts like Thomas and over 30 different having related charts. You can stay up to date about what the Coindesk research team is up to, be it new reports, new webinars, and definitely new podcast series through our Twitter channel, which you can also find a link in today's show notes. Cheers, everyone. Talk to you all again soon. <laughs>